Lake Effect brings you conversations about what's happening in Milwaukee and the people, places, and organizations that shape the community. This is Lake Effect Spotlight from WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Why does poverty persist in the United States, the richest country in the world? Sociologist Matthew Desmond argues in his new book, it's because everyone else benefits from it. Not just the wealthiest Americans, but those who are housed, college-educated, and secure. His book, Poverty by America, explores why so many in the U.S. live in poverty and how to end it. Desmond attended graduate school at UW-Madison and won the Pulitzer Prize for his 2016 book, Evicted, which looks at housing and poverty in Milwaukee. He talks about his new book with WUWM's Lena Tran. I have been researching and reporting on poverty all of my adult life, basically. You know, I've uh, I've lived in really poor communities. I've spoken to organizers and union reps and been time with folks that are part of the working homeless and studied statistics and taught classes. And, you know, but I just, I didn't feel like I really had a solid answer to core question. Like if someone came up to me on the street and said, Matt, why is there so much poverty in America and how can we finally end it? What would it be my answer? And this book is my answer. And you land on a pretty clear and damning answer, which is that the reason poverty is so persistent in our country is because those who are better off benefit from it. How do people who aren't living in poverty benefit? We permit unrelenting exploitation of the poor in the labor market, in the housing market, in the financial market. So we allow workers to be really shortchanged and we allow millions of folks to work for for poverty wages. And who benefits from that? Corporations do, sure, but so do many of us that consume the cheap goods and services that the working poor produce. So do many of us who are invested in the stock market. You know, don't we benefit a bit when we see our Savings go up, even if that requires a kind of a human sacrifice. We protect tax breaks that really are designed to subsidize affluence and not alleviate poverty. We protect things like the mortgage interest deduction or tax breaks for wealth transfers or retirement plans. And a lot of those tax breaks really accrue to the richest families in America, and that starves anti-poverty spending. And then many of us continue to embrace segregation. You know, we we build walls around our communities through zoning laws, and we hoard opportunity behind those those walls. We have to begin tearing down the walls, and I think we have to start taking steps as a country to finally abolish poverty. Early on in the book, you tell this story of your friend Wu, who you met while you were living in Milwaukee, and he has this awful experience that is actually pretty common for people living in poverty. Could you share that story? Sure. Wu and I lived together uh, in a rooming house on the north side of Milwaukee, and he stepped on a nail there once, and he ignored the the infection that started spreading. Uh, he just couldn't afford to pay it any mind. He worked all the time as a security guard. And um, pretty soon the infection accelerated, and it was accelerated by his diabetes, and he he had his leg amputated. And um, traumatic, of course. You know, Wu is just a gregarious man. He's also a very big man, and I found him in the, the hospital. And just He looks small, and we cried together. And then we applied for disability together for him, and he got rejected. And then he hired a lawyer, 
And uh, the lawyer won the case who got, I think, $3,400 in back pay. And the, the lawyer took home 400 bucks. Now, that that never really bothered Wu. You know, he thought, you know, that's how he was able to get on disability. But, you know, I can't get over the fact that over a billion dollars every year in Social Security funds doesn't go to people like Wu. It goes to lawyers to help people like Wu get on disability. And this is a big theme in America where a lot of money that's earmarked for local folks never reaches them. Right. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. You know, it is this one story, but it's one of the many ways that by and large money set aside for anti-poverty programs doesn't really reach the people who need it. Right. So that's another thing that really blew me away researching the book. We hear so much about welfare dependency. Uh, We heard so much about it in COVID. But if you look at the data, you quickly realize the problem isn't welfare dependency, it's welfare avoidance. There's so many families in America that are leaving a lot of aid on the table. And if you add up like the amount of aid that goes unused by one in five workers who could receive the earned income tax credit, which is like a wage subsidy for working parents, one in five workers don't claim it. One in five elderly Americans who could receive food stamps don't claim them. And you add that up with the folks that pass on unemployment insurance and government health insurance and you know things like that, you realize that every year, you know, over $140 billion, billion with a B, is left on the table. This is this is frankly the opposite of welfare dependence. And we might be like, what's going on? Is it stigma? Are people not uh reaching for programs that that they need and deserve because they're embarrassed. And the answer seems to be not really, actually. There's some mixed evidence for that. There's more evidence for the fact that we've made these programs hard to apply for, onerous. We made it confusing, difficult. And so very simple steps like making the font bigger, uh, helping elderly folks apply for food stamps, uh, directly saying, hey, you, you know, you can apply for this. Did you know this? Sign up now. Uh, really, really can work. And, you know, we live in a country where with a click of a button, we can have just about anything delivered to our door the next day, right? We know how to advertise, we know how to deliver things, apply those skills and that know-how to helping families get connected to programs they need and deserve. Mm -hmm. So you've just talked about ways that we could make it easier for people to access this money that is already earmarked for, you know, anti-poverty measures. Could you take some time to talk about your other solutions? I think we need to do three things to end poverty in America. And I want to focus on the ending part. I do not want to reduce poverty. I want to abolish it. And a country as rich as ours certainly can afford to do so. The first thing we need to do is deepen our investments in anti-poverty spending. And it's not really hard to know where the money would come from. You know, a recently published study showed that if the top 1% of us just paid the taxes they owed, we could raise an additional $175 billion every year. That's almost enough to lift everyone out of poverty. We know how to do this. But we don't just need deeper investments. We need different ones. You know, we need to attack the unrelenting exploitation of poor folks. You know, consider the labor market. There was a time where if you you got a job, you could advance in the company, you got some benefits, your wages went up every year. We are so far away from that today. And a reason is 
because workers have lost power. And so we need to find ways of empowering the poor, expanding their choice, especially with respect to, to where to where to live and how to bank. And then the third thing we need to do is finally end our embrace of segregation. We need to tear down the walls that we've created around our communities and really strive for inclusive communities based on broad prosperity. With those three steps, I think we could finally abolish poverty in this rich nation. Throughout this book, you use the language of we and us, like, you know, the reader is going to be someone with a 401k, you know, but also you're with us. Can you talk about the discomfort of seeing yourself implicated in that system and maybe how to channel that into something productive, like becoming a quote unquote poverty abolitionist? Yeah, you know, this is going to take all of us. And I really thought about that. I'm so glad you brought this up. I really struggled with that language, the language of the book, because you're right. When you use this word, you're like, who is the we, right? Who's the book targeted toward? And at at the very beginning of the book, I I say the we is, you know, the lucky, you know, the college educated, the house, the protected. And, you know, I grew up poor. You know, uh, my family went through foreclosure process before everyone else was doing it, you know, um, and I have, you know, a social mobility story like many Americans. And I think it's important for those of us that have found some security to ask ourselves how we are connected to the problem and thus connected to the solution. So I do think that means doing things like examining our consumer choices, um, looking at our investment portfolios, demanding more of our government. You know, I think that um, as a homeowner, for, I own a home now. You know, so I'm eligible for the mortgage interest deduction, for example. I don't want this deduction. I don't need it. Uh, Many uh, folks that uh, are taking this giant benefit from the government, a benefit that far, far outpaces direct housing assistance to the needy, we, we don't need that. And so I think the more of us that can speak out against this imbalanced um, tax system or, or welfare state that, that benefits many of us, the more that we can kind of rethink our consumer choices and our investment decisions, not only because those individual decisions are important, but also because it can really change the common sense and push the political will. And also, I think we have to invest in broad prosperity. And so that's that sounds abstract, right? Like, what does that mean? But often it means going down to your zoning board meeting at, on a Tuesday night and standing up and saying, look, I refuse to be a segregation. You know, I refuse to deny other kids opportunity. My kids have, have had living in this neighborhood, build this thing. So I, I think that this isn't an argument that is designed to um, spur guilt. It's an, it's an argument designed to spur action and inspire us to reach for, for something better. Even recently in Milwaukee, there's like a few affordable housing developments in um, suburbs like Brookfield and uh, Wauwatosa that are creating opportunities, like you say, for people to show up and be like, no, this is something I want. There was an older person in Brookfield in the news a couple of weeks ago saying that we don't need affordable housing in Brookfield. You just shouldn't want to live in Brookfield if you can't afford it. Right. And so think about that, right? You wouldn't expect a politician to show up at a a soccer game and say, you can join the game, you guys can't. You wouldn't expect a politician to have that kind of of power over a voting booth, right? Yeah, like if they're saying, okay, you guys can vote here, not you guys. But with housing, this seems normal to us, you know? Mm -hmm. 
that we can like divvy out opportunity in this in this blatant way. And so let's just, I mean, let's go in here. What are we what are we what are we nervous about? So many people ostensibly are nervous about the property values, you know, the property values going down. But the research on this is very clear. You know, affordable housing that's built in a smart way that blends into the community, that's spread out through the community, has no effect on, on property values. And I think that um but that I think takes the argument only so far. And we just have to confront the fact that many of these arguments are just fueled by by racism. And if you read the arguments that segregationists were making in the, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, and 70s, man, they sound a lot like the arguments we're making today. And the folks that are defending the wall, they, they do the they do the work, right? They show up at those meetings, they yell at the aldermen, they they write petitions. And I think it's gonna take a lot of us that are striving for a more open Milwaukee, a more open community to start showing up to and, and voicing dissent. What makes you hopeful that we can make progress on what you're offering us, you know, that we won't stay siloed behind the walls that we have risen? I'm hopeful because we have so many resources in this country and we just have to push back against any suggestion otherwise. I think any time we hear this idea like, man, I, how are we going to afford that? We just have to reject that dishonest, even sinful question. You know, we certainly have the resources to make major differences. Like, look at what happened in COVID, right? Like, we reduced child poverty almost in half in just six months. Six months, you know? And so we have the resources. We have the know-how. That gives me hope. I'm also hopeful because we've been here before. You know, in the 60s, Congress was polarized. It was divided. People were blocking legislation left and right. It looks a lot like it does today. But movements, especially the civil rights movement and the labor movement, put unrelenting pressure on lawmakers. And they passed major pieces of civil rights legislation. They passed the War on Poverty and they passed the Great Society. These were programs that cut poverty in half in 10 years. And I think that then as, you know, now as, as then... You know, our hope lies with building an anti-poverty movement. And today a movement is stirring and a movement is necessary. Matthew Desmond is a sociology professor at Princeton University and the author of Poverty by America. He spoke with WUWM's Lena Tran. You can find more interviews like this one by visiting wuwm.com slash lake effect. And while you're there, subscribe to the Lake Effect Spotlight podcast. 